All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna dive right in here with a story, and it's from my uh, it's one of my earliest memories. I think it's like my third earliest memory from when I was four years old. I was playing in the sandbox in the backyard of our house, and my dad was out mowing the lawn with one of those little like non-motorized lawnmowers. If you remember, like the little like kind of whirly blades that they have. And I remember my dad came running out, or my mom came running out the back door, and she was yelling, Mike, that's my dad. And she said, something's happened to little Mike. Little Mike was my 14-year-old cousin. So something about just the terror in my mom's voice and just like the quickness of the responses and the things that happened right after that just kind of seared that moment in my brain. And I don't remember very much before it, and I don't remember very much after it. But little Mike had taken a dirt bike out onto some country roads in Indiana, where he wasn't supposed to ride, had an accident, and he died that day. And so in that way, I would say grief and all of its many ripples became present in my young life. Then when I was in my early 20s, a lifelong friend who I've always called like my extra little sister, so I've got two younger sisters, and this one's Zoe, she's the same age as my youngest sister, grew up next door to us, and she lost her grandma. And so I remember she was talking to me about it because she felt nervous because she's like, you know, gosh, I've never been to a funeral and I don't know what to expect from it. And what I remember was just being like really taken aback and surprised that at that late in life, in her late teens, she had never been to a funeral. Because by that time, I think I had been to 14 funerals. And so I was counting them up with Rachel. Um, I realize now my experience, I think, is the odd one, not hers. Um, I didn't know that at the time. I actually have a friend now in his mid-40s who just lost a mother-in-law, and he describes that as his first significant loss, right? So people have had different experiences with how much loss has been part of your life. But I think aside from like grief and loss being part of my job, part of the things that I do, those things have felt really integrated into my life from a young age in a way that I know isn't always true for everyone, although I know it is true um, for many of you here too. And grief is a universal experience, and so I wanted to do just a little three-part sermon series on it, since so many of you I know have lost people in this last year. I thought it might give us a little bit of a framework for grief, maybe some handle holds through it. So when I talk about grief, obviously I'm not only talking about the loss of a loved one. I think all of us here understand that grief is something that we can experience because of a variety of things. Right? It can be like a job issue, like maybe you didn't get a promotion, and so all the hopes that maybe came from that, you're grieving. It can be the loss of a friend relationship or maybe a major change in a friend relationship. Maybe like your best friend married somebody you don't like and that's really changed the nature of it. People can grieve over that. Um, a change in a romantic relationship status, moving, changed relationships with family. I know I've talked with many of you here who have experienced that, um, as have I, when some of like your family members have like, kind of been lost into that MAGA monstrosity. And so it's changed, and there's a real sadness to like, oh, it feels like I can't have any meaningful like, conversations with my family anymore. And there's a real grief with that. There's grief when there's changed expectations for the future, whether it's health or money issues, big things like COVID and disasters as well as lost loved ones. In the Bible, Jonah, you know, the same guy that we talked a little bit about last week, um, he mourned the loss of a plant that was giving him shade. And I think he mourned it in part because it also symbolized something more to him, right? The loss of something that he hoped for, something that he believed to be true. 
So grief is the ways that we deal with all of these losses, big and small. And so when we talk about grief, we're talking about a whole spectrum of things. So I realized, uh, recently had a dear pastor friend of mine who I talk with every month, and she was just chatting with me about how I'm doing, and she asked me how I feel when I visit my dad. So for those of you who don't know, my dad has frontal temporal dementia with Parkinson's, so it's called FTDP. Uh, he was diagnosed quite young, in his early 50s with it, and so it's been a, actually a 20-year process of slow decline. And when he was diagnosed, they gave him two to 10 years to live, so, so far, he has far outlived that time frame. My mom is his caregiver. We pray for them every week. Mike and Janine are on the prayer list as they come along. He has since lost much of his ability to communicate or have much meaningful interaction. And so what I told my friend Aidy when she asked about him was, you know, it's, it's weird, like at this point, I don't feel much of anything. It's actually mostly pretty numb at this point because I have grieved so long and so many times. And he's been so many different people and I've had to grieve the loss of each and every version of him. So I don't know if that makes sense, but if you've known someone who's had dementia, it's a little like, okay, which version of them? I can't even sometimes remember what version of him is actually him. But I still have these little moments when it's like something will hit me and I'll find myself getting teary or crying and it's like, oh, that, that was a little loss that I still hadn't processed or that hadn't quite occurred to me. And so, I don't usually share this many sad stories if you're new to CNO, but I share this because I think there are frameworks for grief, um, but while those exist, it's just, it's not a linear procedure that we can just move through with like some kind of set time frame and then it's like, okay, it's done. Right? That grief, it can just ebb and flow and it is not tidy. You might be familiar with the psychiatrist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief. Like that's a pretty common thing that's talked about in culture, right? She talked about denial, depression, anger, bargaining, and acceptance. Um, some models I think now include shock and testing into that, but when Kubler-Ross came up with that initial five-stage model, she was working with people who had terminal illnesses, so it wasn't like designed to be a like a five-step program for sort of like diagnosing where we're at in the grief process. Does that make sense? It's not like step one, step two, step three, okay. Oh good, I'm at bargaining. That means this should be over soon, right? I'm almost done with this. It just doesn't work that way. But I do think that naming some of those emotions or those experiences, like denial and anger, um, that that can be really helpful to just know and be aware that those emotions can and very often do show up in a grief process. And it's just not a set journey. Not everybody starts in the same place. Not everybody's gonna start with denial, say. So David Kessler talks about how, he says, each person's grief is as unique as their fingerprint, right? That there's no right way to grieve and we'll grieve differently for different people. So I thought for me, I, I noticed that grief sometimes um, makes me want to organize. Right? Like organize something really thoroughly, like something that's inherently chaotic, like our medicine cabinet, that is just always, right? So I sometimes feel like if my emotions are a little out of control, I want to manage something that feels controllable. And maybe you relate to that, maybe you don't. Apparently grief made some of Jesus's friends want to sleep. In Mark 14, um, we've got the story where Jesus is about to be sent to his death, and it says that he is deeply grieved to the point of death, told somewhere else, right, he's sweating blood. So he's in a deep, deep distress state as he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
and he really wanted the company of his friends for comfort, but he goes and he finds them asleep, and he gets upset with them for not being present with them in his distress. But, you know, Luke's gospel implies that Jesus' friends weren't just, like, too sleepy to care. They're sometimes, I think, depicted as sort of the dopey guys who fell asleep. Um, But it says they were overwhelmed with their own grief. Luke 22. When he, Jesus, got up from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping because of grief. So when you grieve, you might find yourself doing things that seem foreign to you. Maybe you're not usually prone to angry outbursts, but you find yourself just like really snapping with people over a few months. Or maybe you constantly lose or forget things, and that's not you. A good friend of mine just lost her mom, and she has just been forgetting things left and right. She's forgetting things at restaurants, and I'm like, yeah, it's grief. Those tend to be just situational responses to the stress. So maybe a slightly funnier story. When I first moved to Ann Arbor, back in 2001. I was 23 years old, and so I moved here after college to work for Borders Bookstore, right? Their corporate office used to be here in Ann Arbor, down off of Varsity Drive, off of Ellsworth, if you know where that is, over by the airport. And when I got hired, I had a very entry-level salary, and so I was trying to just sort of figure out where it was that I could make some rent in this area so I could pay my bills. And I grew up on a little bit of land, and so my first thought was, you know, maybe I'll try and rent a room from somebody who, like, lives a little outside of town so I can just ride my bike on some of the dirt roads. And so I'll never forget, one of the places I went to look was a house that was up off of North Territorial, and the owner was another young single woman, and when I got there, she was all in black, and she was wearing a black lace veil. It wasn't over her face, but it was, it was she had it on. And she told me, she said, you know, look, I just lost my cat. I'm not in a great place. I'm really sorry. And I was like, that's okay. I get it. You know, I've always loved my pets. But then we went inside, and the living room wasn't very big, but there in the center, occupying most of it, was a really large altar to this cat, taller than me, maybe not that hard. I'm 5'3". It was tiered, right? It had at least like three tiers, and she had it draped with, I don't know if it was like a dark sheet, some kind of fabric that was laying over it. And then there were lots of pictures of her cat, pictures of her with her cat, pictures of like gods and goddesses, burning candles all over it, incense. I mean, this thing was um, enormous. A lot of effort had been put into it. It was a little impressive. But my 23-year-old formerly fundamentalist self was like not quite sure how to handle that. And I was like, oh my gosh, I really need to like get out of here as soon as I can. But it's funny because looking back on it now, I'm like, oh, that woman's probably like one of our friends in Ipsy, right? Like, of course you'd have a multi-level shrine to your dead cat in your living room. Who doesn't? <laughs> kind of kidding, but I'm like, I mean, lesbians and our cats, right? You know, our animals. So I say that to say, like, one of the most important things we can do to one another, um, to treat one another's grief kindly, is to treat it non-judgmentally which is not what I did there with that poor woman who lost her cat. I definitely judged it. So David Kessler says, he says, too often outsiders who might have the best of intentions will suggest to a bereaved person that it's time to move on, embrace life, let go of grief. But grief should be a no-judgment zone. Those who understand what you're going through will never judge you or think that your grief is out of proportion or too prolonged. Grief is what's going on inside of us, while mourning is what we do on the outside. The internal work of grief is a process, a journey. It doesn't have prescribed dimensions. It does not end on a certain date. So I think as people 
um, who have friends who have grieved as being part of a faith community with people who are grieving. I think another gift we can give each other is to just bear witness to the magnitude of each other's losses without judgment, right? Because grieving is really vulnerable, um, but it can help relieve some of the isolation and the loneliness of it when it's shared in places and with people who have earned the right to share it with you. And so part of creating safe spaces for grief we know it refrains from saying things that are, that are um, maybe unhelpful. Probably nobody here would say these things, but it's sometimes helpful to say, like, everything will be okay. It's sometimes not a helpful thing to say because it might not be. Um, this is a blessing in disguise. That is definitely not like a blue ocean-y thing, but I have heard that in my past. Or God will use this for their purposes. Right? We all know those are not like helpful sentiments to people who are freshly hurting. Um, there's a brief story in Leviticus 10 where Moses' brother Aaron, he loses both of his sons at once um, due to a fire in the temple. And so he is grieving heavily, and his brother Moses comes up to him, and he says something just really insensitive. Um, he just kind of implies that it maybe it was a little bit their own fault and that maybe God would be glorified through their deaths. And the line that follows that interaction between Moses and Aaron, I think, communicates like everything in four words. It just says, and Aaron was silent. Uh, yeah. right? Just imagine Aaron looking at his brother and seething and being like, you just better get away from me right now. And I love that it re records that moment because to me that's just like such a human moment and Aaron was silent. Um, I'd say in my experience, both as a griever and a pastor, presence is another powerful gift that we can give each other when our presence is wanted or welcome. So just sitting quietly uh, with the person who's hurting, maybe watching something together. I like to try and have like a regular touch point where a person isn't expected to behave in a certain way. It's not like, let's have coffee and talk about how you're feeling. No, just more like, I don't know, we could watch a game together, maybe get a drink, and then if there's space, taking our cues from the person who's hurting um, to be able to listen. I wanted to give a shout out to Paul Sonda, who's still at home recovering from his um, ankle replacement surgery. But I feel like he is particularly good at this. I've watched him walk with people like this. I don't know if you know, Paul lost his first wife when they were quite young, and so I feel like he's really got um, an understanding and a heart for this. Um, I think just simply sitting with somebody and acknowledging the depth of their loss and bearing witness to the magnitude of that can go a long way. So there's a book that I really like. It's called Mourning and Mitzvah. Um, it's written about mourning from a Jewish perspective. But Rabbi Ann Brenner, she offers a three-part metaphor for grief that I'm just kind of loosely using for this sermon series. Right? And it's based on the belief of Jewish mystics that the creation of the universe happened in three parts. Right, contraction, the breaking of vessels, and then healing. All right, so contraction is just the initial loss. Right, so in this sort of mystical telling of the creation story, it's thought that like divine light and divine energy came and collided so forcefully that the jolt of that created a deep darkness. Right, so it's like the initial shock of a significant loss can feel like this jolt and then darkness. Right? It's like having the wind knocked out of you. My family was never the same after little Mike died. I was too little to experience the fullness of that grief, but I did witness its effects over the years and even now on his siblings. And then how over time that collective grief gets integrated into ways that really transform us. 
So this last story I want to tell, I asked Ken if I could share this, and he said I could. So uh, maybe so Ken lost his first wife, Nancy, suddenly in 2012. Some of you um, knew Nancy and remember her. She was also my friend and colleague and mentor. And so I texted him this week and I said, you know, I've got this memory, Ken, that like really soon after Nancy died, um, Reverend James, who used to be the rector here at St. Clair's, like almost immediately contacted you and said something like, welcome to the new you that you didn't think you'd have to be. And Ken said, oh yeah, he did that. Um, but it was an email. <laughs> it came about two weeks after Nancy died. And then in that same email, James said, and I know you're not ready right now, but when you are, I have somebody to set you up with. <laughs> All right? So I remember Ken telling us at the time, because he was a little taken aback. I was appalled. The timing is a little soon. Um, if you know Reverend James, it kind of makes sense. He was a very good friend uh, to both of us, I'd say, through the years. Um, his timing was not always sensitive. But in true James style, there was actually some comfort and wisdom in it in the end. The woman that James wanted to set Ken up with is now the woman he's married to, the lovely Julia. <laughs> and then the bit about Ken becoming a new you, I think was perhaps one of the most honest things anyone said to him at that time. And so the truth of that really stuck with me over the years as I have helped people navigate grief or navigate my own. It will change you. Um, it, depending on the loss and how close it was, it will transform who you are. Um, Grief is sometimes described as a pilgrimage. Jonathan Omer Mann says, a pilgrimage isn't a journey towards transformation. It's not like you take this journey and then you're something different, but it's a transforming journey. Right? It's the grief that changes us and how well we make meaning of our grief and how we can tell the stories about our grief um, affects who we become. And again, everyone's journey is as unique as their fingerprint. So I just want to close this morning um, with this beginning here. Just point out, we have some candles that we keep up front. And we don't often talk about those, but those are candles where you can go and you can light one in honor of somebody who was hurting, somebody that you've lost. So you'll notice there's usually some lit every week. And I go up and I just, I do one for my Aunt Carol. I do one for my Grandpa Edstrom. I do one for my Grandma Swan. So I just light a bunch of candles for people who are important to me. And for me, it kind of helps to remember that like they're being held in this space and part of the communion of the saints. And so if that's something that's helpful to you, you are always invited um, to light a candle at any time before the service, during the singing, whatever is meaningful for you. All right, with that, we often take a little time of just silence or guided meditation. And I think this morning we'll just take some silence, knowing people make noise, but let's just be silent together before the Creator for a moment.
And God, sometimes I just think it's so hard to be human sometimes. And I just ask that your, your spirit would be with us and bring comfort to us in those times when it's hard. Um, ask that we can be present to each other, that we can bear witness to one another's grief and mourning. And sometimes, God, we just need to know that you're also bearing witness to the depth of our losses. Um, we ask that you would just give us tremendous grace um, to hold spaces that sometimes feel uncomfortable, um, that you would help us to love one another well and love one another through some of the thick and thin in this journey together. In your name we pray, amen.